You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the Welcome this morning. My name is Sam, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Field Church, and I'm so grateful that you're here. You can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're going to be reading um, through a passage as we study the book of Luke. We're continuing in um, our study, and we're finishing up today the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus' sermon um, that he preached, Jesus was mainly a preacher. He did a lot of other things, in addition, obviously, to being the Son of God who came to bring salvation to the world, he preached. Um, And so we're going to be finishing up this Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll be moving into chapter seven of Luke. All right. Um, And so be ready for that. Uh, We have learned that Luke is a very detailed writer. And so a lot of this uh, study has been through much detail, which which takes takes a lot of a lot of time. Um, this sermon uh, undoubtedly was longer than what we see in in Luke and even what we see in Matthew. Although Matthew is more extensive, they give the same accounts. Matthew is more extensive. Luke it has a lot of details. Uh, undoubtedly, we can read through this in a sitting, um, and this probably took Jesus um, hours to go through. But as we study in detail, it takes us um, weeks and even months t- to to really uncover um, all the truth in which Jesus is saying as the Son of God as he's preaching. And so we're going to look at both of these accounts today in the Luke passage and in the Matthew passage um, because they're supplemental. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the Gospels, right, um, all tell the same account. uh, But God uses the writers by the the leading of the Holy Spirit to supplement each other, to give us a greater picture of what's really here in these accounts. And so it is with this Luke passage and with the Matthew passage um, of the same account of the conclusion of his sermon. Um, They're going to give us greater insight when we look at them together. So we're going to look at both. So let's read um, Luke chapter six, starting in verse 46. We're going to go to verse 49. If you're new here, um, I want to let you know uh, that, uh, you, you know, what will be helpful is if you grab your Bible, look at your phone, um, a Bible app, or grab one of the Bibles that are in the hallway, because we are, we're going to walk right through this text for, for the most of our time. As we do every week, we're going to expose what's really here in the scriptures, and we're going to learn uh, what's really here. And so, so we're going to look at this. This is going to be where our, our eyes kind of stay the whole time. So if you have a Bible, it'd be a good thing if you, if you open, look at it, follow along with us. If you don't, take one of ours and bring it home with you. We'd love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. That's our gift to you. And so let's read, starting in verse 46 of Luke chapter 6. Uh, very familiar words, but um, we're going to explain what they mean today. Ready? Here we go. This is the conclusion of his sermon, okay? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You're like, oh, we're in for it today, okay? (laughs) Everyone, and we are, kind of, so. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man 
building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The first thing I want to tell you before we dive into this and just walk through the passage, as we kind of move into the passage, um, the first thing I want you to know is that the theme of this passage is about salvation, okay? This is about salvation. It's about um, what it looks like to truly have salvation in Christ, to, to be saved, to go to heaven, to be with God, to have your sins forgiven, um, and ultimately have eternal life in relationship with him. This is the conclusion, like I said, of Jesus' sermon. So Jesus writing a sermon um, and, uh, and preaching it, although I don't think that he probably needed to write anything down to remember it, um, has a conclusion. And this is his conclusion. This is his call to response. And we see this as his conclusion in both Matthew's account and Luke's account. And the, 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 the issue that he is discussing about salvation as he closes this sermon has to do with the one who will ultimately survive judgment and the one who ultimately will not survive judgment. And so like I told you, these are, these are hard truths, okay? I, 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 I'm with you in this. I, I'm, I'm a human being like you. We are hearing God's word and we are saying, and really it's your choice as to whether or not you believe this is true from God's word, but these are hard truths. I mean, they have been hard truths for, for the past uh, few weeks, right? That's why it's healthy for us to preach through books of the Bible because for me, I would maybe be prone to, coming up here and giving you happy passages, right? That make you f leave feeling very excited and encouraged, right? And with your chest out, like I'm doing a great job. And that, um, that might even so be the case today, but I want to tell you that this passage is weighty and that's just what it is. It's healthy that we walk through books because I don't have a choice of what comes next. I just take what's next, right? And, and, and God, God decides. And so, like I told you, this passage is weighty. It, it deals with the one who will survive judgment and the one who will not, okay? The one who will be saved and the one who will not be saved. The one who will go to heaven, and although we don't like to hear it, the one who will go to hell. Um, and this is what Jesus has come and given. And now these words are serious because the reality of these truths are real, Okay? Eternal life is real. Um, judgment is real. And so Jesus is speaking of salvation and, and judgment here. And, and really, my, my plea to you is that you would listen and that you would take these truths into account and that you would respond based upon the truth of Jesus's words. Don't tune them out. Jesus has come to bring salvation to you, to offer you forgiveness of sins, to offer you eternal life, to offer you salvation in which you'd be with him forever. But undoubtedly, at the end of this sermon, his words were weighty, and people felt the weight of them. And so these words are true. The, the, the thing that Jesus is saying here, the theme, is that he has provided the truth. In this sermon in particular and in his life, 
and what he's spoken so far about reconciliation to God, about forgiveness of sin, about the truth of salvation. He is announcing this truth about salvation and he has come to secure your salvation, secure your forgiveness of all your sin. And he is announcing this to us in this truth that he is speaking to us about salvation, this truth that he has come to secure must be received, embraced, acted upon if you are to be truly saved. That's what he's, that's what he's saying here. He has come and he's, he's articulated this truth. He has announced this truth. He has proclaimed this truth about salvation. And this truth, based upon what he says, must be embraced received, accepted, acted upon, believed in, in order for salvation to occur. And if it's not, then salvation will not occur. That's what, that's what he's saying here. Now you might say, well, no duh, right? But let me just tell you that, that it's, it's not um, to be just assumed that everybody knows that. And, and I think he's speaking here to even people who believe that they, that they have salvation, which we're gonna see. But listen, many of us maybe come from a Christian background, maybe come from a Christian home, maybe have experienced um, flavors of Christianity our whole lives. And maybe we have an inherited assumption from hearing through the grapevine or just a, a life of maybe what we've felt is right or think is right regarding salvation. But maybe we've never really heard Jesus's words about what salvation is and, and how it comes to pass and who is saved and what the saved person looks like and his life looks like and his heart looks like and what fruit is produced. Maybe we've never seen the truth of that in the scriptures. And so maybe our thoughts about salvation or our own righteousness are not based on really any truth at all. Maybe just what we've heard our whole lives or maybe what we think is true or maybe what someone's told us is true or what we feel should be right. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, no, you don't understand. Your salvation needs to be based upon what I say is true about how one is saved. And then once you base that on that truth, salvation truly comes. And if you don't, then salvation will not come. You'll not survive judgment. That's what, that's what he's saying here. And so what I want to tell you is, I know typically this passage has been taken a, another way, which is if you build your life on the foundation of his word, when the storms of life come, your house um, will stand, it will not break. And while that is true, okay, um, that is true, and, and Jesus, just like you, can say a number of different things in one statement, right? You can do the same thing as a human being created, created in the image of God, okay? But what Jesus is specifically referring to here is, is salvation, okay? In the context of this passage, this passage, he is speaking about salvation, okay? And so let me just show you that to give you an understanding, and this is even before we're diving in, but to just help you see this, this bigger picture of the fact that he's speaking about salvation in this, in this passage and, and, and the examples that he gives. If you look at the text with me, um, you can see right above our passage in verse 40, starting in verse 43, verse 44, verse 45. He describes the good tree and the good fruit. And he's articulating that anyone who has, has the treasure, the, the right treasure in their heart, the one who has received Jesus, will 
produce good fruit because of the treasure that's in their heart. So saying a Christian, you can tell, you can see the results that you've truly trusted in Christ through the good fruit that's being produced in your life. And the one who has not trusted in Christ will not see that fruit. This is a salvation idea, right? This is talk about salvation. Now, if we flip over to Matthew's account of this same passage, flip over with me, okay? I don't want to put it up on the screen because I want to give you Bible drill. I want you to be able to turn in your Bibles. So if you go in your Bible to the left, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're in Luke. So go left a couple of books, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 24 through 27. You're going to see the same account, Okay, the same account of this. So Matthew chapter seven, here's the, the passage, verses 24 through 27. But before I read it, I want you to notice what's above it and below it. Okay, what's above it is verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. First of all, that sentence sounds a lot like the introduction of the sentence we just read in the passage. Now, again, I, I've told you before, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the same story, but different emphasis in the life of Jesus put together will give us a greater picture of that. And so when we, when we put them together, they supplement each other and give us a greater picture. Doesn't mean they're contradicting each other. Gives us a greater picture. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is only found in Matthew and Luke, okay? And they, again, have different points of emphasis written different ways. It very well may could be that these are different, these are the same sermons on different occasions. It, it would be common of, uh, in Jesus's day for Jesus to have the same sermon because the truth doesn't change, the gospel doesn't change, so that he would preach the same thing in multiple places, right? Uh, that would be very common using the same illustrations, the same uh, ideas, the same metaphors, uh, et cetera, the same parables. And so this could be two different occasions, right? But it's probably the same sermon, but just they're recorded differently. So that sentence in verse 21 looks a lot like the beginning of our passage that we saw in Luke. Someone saying, Lord, Lord, not doing what he says, thereby being not truly saved. But what I really want you to see is that this Verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23 are discussed. It's a discussion on salvation, which is the whole Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And so then, even after the passage, look at verse 28. They were amazed that Jesus is teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Not just like he like spoke with a deep, raspy voice, and they're like, man, that dude has authority, right? They're saying that because he spoke with authority about salvation about forgiveness. No one speaks like this. How do you know who will go to heaven? How do you know who will be saved? How do you know who will have forgiveness? Jesus is speaking as one who has authority. So what I'm showing you is that this whole picture has been about salvation this whole time. It has been. It will be. That's why Jesus came to earth to provide salvation. This whole sermon is about it, right? So with that being the case, let's read Matthew 7 to just see the other account um, of, of, the same, of the same topic. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Ready? Notice the changes or the differences if you can remember them. They'll help enlighten us later. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see some differences, but both are talking about salvation and both are speaking of the same thing. We'll address the differences. I want you to know this is why Jesus came, to provide salvation. So when we walk through this, and it's gonna be very simple, we're gonna have three simple points. I just can't reiterate to you enough that Jesus' words here are the truth about who is saved and who will not be saved, about judgment, about forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. This is why Jesus came. Look at John 20, verses 30 through 31. At the end of John, he tells us why Jesus came. Look at this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, So he did a lot more. Matthew's, even though it's extensive, even his sermon is extensive, Jesus' sermon was probably far more extensive than even Matthew records. Okay, he's probably there all day. But even more than that, Jesus did so many things that are not written in this book or written in the whole of the Bible because the Bible actually says if everything was written, all the books of the world would not contain it, what he has done. But these are written, look, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my believing you may have eternal life in his name. Jesus has come to just bring salvation. That's why everything he's doing is revolving around salvation. 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into into the world to save sinners. Once again, Jesus has come to provide salvation. And so these accounts give us the conclusion of his sermon that's been about salvation the whole time the whole time, okay? And so Jesus is teaching about this idea of salvation. And here's what I wanna um, help with in regards of this being applicable to your life before we see the three points. Um, In this teaching, what Jesus is ultimately addressing is that the sincerity of your religion is not what will give you eternal life. The sincerity of your religion is not what will help you survive the judgment. Nor is your mere knowledge about Jesus, nor is your religious activity. There were plenty of people who were very actively religious and even thought very highly of Jesus. They were associated with him. You could say in our context, they went to church. They said they were a Christian. Their family was quote-unquote Christian. They've always been associated with Christianity, right? This is what it would be parallel to in our culture. Everyone thinks they're a Christian, right? And they even call Jesus Lord of their life, but because they do not do what he says and base their life off of his word in obedience and trusting his words for salvation and what a saved person looks like, what they claim about being a Christian is, it doesn't mean anything. It's in vain. They don't truly know Christ. 
And so this is very, very significant for us to pay attention to. I think in our culture, the immediate culture of our, of our lives, but even the Christian culture as a whole, listen, I think we have vaguely understood ideas about religion, about Christianity. And so what it leads to is like a marginal commitment of the understanding of, of, to the understanding of truth. What I mean by that is like we have vague ideas about what it means to be a Christian, we don't look at it for ourselves in God's word. We don't dig deep to find the truth about what it means to be a Christian and truly be saved and truly know Christ, right? We don't really see what's the words that are on these pages. We just have a vague understanding of inherited assumptions from someone who's told us along the way. And therefore, we, we really don't have a commitment to find out these truths. And therefore, it results in a seemingly surface level Christian life, which is really not even existing or a Christian salvation that doesn't even exist in our hearts because it's not based upon any truth. It's just based upon what we feel. And again, what Jesus is saying here is if you do not base your salvation upon the true words that I have spoken about what it means to be a Christian, you will not withstand the judgment. My words are true. And I say this is weighty because your eternity is at stake here. Your whole eternity is at stake. These are important words from Jesus. What does he say about salvation? Three things as we walk through the passage. You can keep your finger in Matthew because we're gonna refer back to it a little bit, okay? But Luke chapter six, verses 46 through 49, the first things is, thing is that Jesus' true words about salvation, they require the right response or the proper response, okay? Jesus' true words about salvation, they require the, the proper or the right response. Now, what do I mean by that? But the emphasis, I'm gonna walk through it and show you where I get that from, but the emphasis here that I'm saying in this point is that the response needs to be based on the truth. Got that? So the right response is based upon the truth that is given. It's not any response. It's not what I want my response to Jesus to be. It's not what I want my life to look like and have Jesus. It's what Jesus says is true of a Christian and how one becomes a Christian. And that is through the obedience of what he has said about salvation and believing and trusting and repenting and following and your whole life being devoted to his word. Now, this is weighty. I wish I could make you laugh and smile for a moment, okay? Um, but I know that this is true, and this is weighty, and this is how Jesus chooses to end his, his message. So what we see here is that these things that he has said about salvation so far in this sermon are the things that are true about salvation. The one who repents, the one who doesn't look to this life, the one who gives up worldly treasures, the one who's turning away from their sin, the one who does what he says. These are the evidences we've seen through the sermon of the one who's truly a, a Christian. And so most of what he said right at this point, up to this point, has become from a, an idea that the one who trusts in Christ is one who repents and believes, obeys and produces fruit. And that he is the Messiah, 
This is the one who is, has salvation. Jesus' truth is what you must build your salvation on, okay? It's not just what I think, not just what I feel. His words are true. The emphasis are, is on his words, the true things that he's said about salvation, what he says that evidence of a, evidences of a Christian really are. These are the words that are true. And the right response is based upon his truth. So we must come, listen, we must come to a place where we say, whatever he says about repentance and belief, and whatever he says the saved person looks like or has responded to what truth that he has spoken, right? That's how I must judge whether or not I'm a Christian based upon what he has said. We must come to a place where we say, whatever Jesus has said about what repentance and belief for salvation is truly looks like, that's what I must base my salvation on and nothing else. That's what he's articulating here. Does this make sense? So let's, let's get into this. The first thing that we see here as, as we look in this is this right response. So what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's speaking to the Jews, okay? You guys remember this. This is the context of what he's doing right now. He's speaking to those who follow a religion called what? Judaism, right? So that's who he's speaking to here, okay? So when we see this first verse, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He is speaking, he's preaching to the Jews. These Jews are familiar with Judaism, the law, right? So they, listen close, these people are religiously devout, now, there's a mixed bunch here, but these are people who we saw in the beginning of Matthew, or, of Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, before he preaches this same sermon. They're called his disciples. And in Matthew, I mean, in Luke's account, before he preaches this sermon, are called disciples. And they are extremely religiously devout. That's who he's speaking to. So you get the proper context. He's not speaking to like, some off the wall, you know, whatever. He's speaking to people who look like they're believers. That's who he's speaking to. Listen, th these people inevitably are people who follow what we would call the Shema, which is the great commission of the Old Testament. Like we can spend some time in Deuteronomy chapter six and talk about family discipleship and talk about the great commission found in the Old Testament. And it gives us a lot of insight into what evangelism and discipleship look like because simply in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, which is the great commission of the Old Testament, the call is to just share the, the story about God everywhere you go, right? That's simply what evangelism and discipleship is, right? And so we see this in the Old Testament. And we could study this and spend some time, but what I'm alluding to is the fact that these Jewish people who he is preaching to are people who follow this. Okay? So look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Just read it with me. This is a great commission of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And later on, what you're going to... 
is what the command was, was simply this. When people ask you, what, like, what about this God do you believe? They're just going to tell them the story wherever you go. Like he parted the Red Sea, he did this, he did this, right? It's the good news about God being told to other people. That's what the Great Commission is in the New Testament, right? But what's ideal about this passage is that it helps the Israelites have a proper view of God. And so what I'm telling you is that these people believed this. They believed what? Well, they believed the main theological statement in the beginning of this, which is this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen, ready? The people that Jesus is preaching to believe that there was one true God and they believed in the right God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They believed in this God. They believed in the God of the Old Testament, the true God. This is how close they were. And what Jesus is saying to them is that they're not saved. So this should raise our antennas up. Listen, this, this should like really raise your antennas up. Like these people believe that and this is what Jesus is telling them? Like who can be saved? Well, it's gotta be based on the right information. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Because listen, ready? The problem wasn't that they didn't believe in the true God of Israel. The problem was whether they understood the predicament of their own sinfulness and how they cannot be reconciled to God or have eternal life without that sin being paid for. The predicament that they were in is that they needed forgiveness and imputed righteousness, righteousness given to them by God. The predicament that they were in was that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who provided that salvation and they didn't trust in it with their lives. They still trusted in their own religion. The problem here was that what he provided through his atoning sacrifice on the cross wasn't going to become their treasure. And primarily what Jesus is also saying here is, listen, the problem is that the, their lack of obedience displayed that they truly did not know Jesus. They just said they did. And so Jesus is coming to say, I am the way of salvation. I have given you the truth about what it means to be saved. You must base your salvation upon my words and you will survive judgment. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what they didn't believe. And the truth of this good news is that Jesus was teaching about salvation, that they must believe this. Listen, these people, they worshiped in temples. They offered sacrifices. They held the ceremonies. They were committed Jews, so much so that they followed him. And again, in Matthew 5 and earlier in Luke, they are called disciples. But verse 46, look at your text. He says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? So evidently here, some of them are not true disciples because he says, why do you call me that and do not do what he says? He's not asking this question if this wasn't happening, right? And what's happening are those, some people who are saying Jesus is the Lord, even the Lord of my life, but their life would show that he's not. 
They haven't trusted in his words of salvation and followed in a life of obedience. So listen, this is what he's saying. Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not obey what I say? Do you not do what I tell you, right? To anyone who's calling him Lord, that's an act, admission of allegiance, right? To the one who allegiance is owed to. And so really it's patronizing Jesus to, to say that and to actually not truly mean that. It's in vain, right? Why do you not do what I tell you? Some were calling him that and not acting on what they were calling him, which tells us that that is possible. It is possible for you to say Jesus is my Lord and that not be true, right? Just because you say it doesn't make it true. If I say I'm a tree, I'm not a tree. So it doesn't matter how many times I say it, right? It's not true, and so what he's saying here is evidently these people are religiously committed. They're calling him Lord. They think highly of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, but they're not responding in true commitment to the truth of what it means to be one of his disciples. When they say Lord, Lord, what Lord literally means is teacher or master. In the Old Testament, it's used to translate the word Jehovah. And when it's repeated... It means teacher of teachers or master of masters, right? Or the word of the Lord spoken or prophet, right? And so these religiously committed people who are learning from the master teacher, the, the, the teacher of teachers, the master of masters, a one who speaks from God, they are in agreement about all of that. In agreement about all of it. And they say he is one who speaks from God. But yet Jesus is still asking this question because it is true that many of them are saying that and it's, they don't mean it. He's not the Lord of their life, really. They're not one of his disciples. They haven't done the hard work of recognizing their sin and repentance and belief and faith for true salvation in obedience to what he's called. They just said it. And so listen, Jesus doesn't want followers like that. Because he wants you to be truly saved. This is a hard truth for a good outcome. The gospel is a proper view of God in his holiness. It's a proper view of your own self and your sin. It's a looking to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. It's a true commitment to his word. And therefore, it's a life that is producing fruit in obedience towards what he says in his word. Those are the ones who are going to heaven and will survive judgment. The ones who obey what he says in that way. So they have shown themselves to be false disciples. And Jesus is asking, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Words are no substitute for obedience. Words are not the right response to just say, Lord, Lord. As we saw in Matthew's account, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, right? But Jesus really didn't know them. So the right response is based upon the truth that Jesus has given. And the truth shows someone who is repenting, believing, trusting, living for in obedience of the words of Jesus. The right response must be given to the true words of Jesus about salvation. That's what he's saying here. Jesus says in John 8, 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You are my true disciples, or you are truly my disciples, right? So I think he's asking us the same question here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
And so I think you, you should ask, I should ask. Is my salvation based upon the truth of the words that he says in his word? Do I even know what his word says? And, and if it is true and, and I'm understanding the words of salvation, why don't I pursue salvation like he tells me to in his word if he's my Lord? And even furthermore, in my Christian life, if he is my Lord, why do I not do what he says? He clarifies this with two illustrations, and those are the second two points, and those are the easy, it's the easy work. We've already done all the hard work. So the second thing that we see in our passage clarifies this. It's just two illustrations, right? That's it. He's just given two illustrations to clarify what he's saying. Number two, what we see in this passage is the first illustration. Those who act upon Jesus' true words about salvation will survive judgment, okay? Those who act upon Jesus' true words about salvation will survive judgment. That's, that's easy. It's just what he's saying. Survive judgment means you will be declared righteous before God on judgment day, and you will be in heaven, with God forever. The emphasis here is upon his truth about salvation, the one who acts upon what he says, his true words, right? What's true builds a stable foundation because they're actually true, okay? And so if we look at this, look at the passage with me again, verse 47. So everyone who comes to me and hears my words, so if you have come to me, you're my disciples, they're following him, the ones who have thought highly of Jesus, they understand what he's saying, and to some degree, they're religiously committed, and here's my words, which they all were hearing his words, and here's the key, does them, follows through, not just obedience, like you do good works, but even does them in the sense of like you believe, you repent, believe, you trust, you follow, you're producing fruit, obedience, like all of it of the one who is truly trusting in me. This is what I will show you he is, is I will show you what, what this person is like, okay? And he gives an illustration to demonstrate the one who is truly trusted in Jesus' true words for salvation and how this one will survive judgment. And what he says here in verse uh, 48, he is like a man building a house, okay? As we see this, this is the same in Matthew. Um, we can, you can flip there or you can look at it later. Um, this man is building a house, right? The house there, obviously the parallel is your spiritual life. This is an illustration, metaphor. Your, your spiritual life is this house. Your spiritual reality is this house, ready? This man is building a house and he dug deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. Now, the difference in Matthew is that he doesn't tell us he dug deep. He just tells us he laid the foundation on the rock. Some people say like, well, the emphasis here then is on a different, they're on different planes or one is doing something different. Like, it, it's all silly. It is, the truth is the same. The foundation is on the stable rock truth in both cases. Here, we just get more detail to give us more clarity about what Matthew is saying, Right? And we're going to have a couple of those instances in just a minute. And so what he is saying is this person who builds his spiritual life by, listen, ready? Digging deep, characterized by true repentance, 
True belief, true following of him, digging in God's word to see what's actually true, what Jesus actually says about salvation and what that looks like and how that comes to pass. The one who's dug deep and found that truth, not just like because my friends told me or because this is what I want to be true about salvation so I can keep on doing whatever I want and then just say I'm saved. Like, no, no, the one who's dug deep and found this truth and has built their life upon this rock, this stable ground, right? The rock in the Old Testament is oftentimes God is referred to this rock. Even in the New Testament, Christ is, is seen as this foundation. First Corinthians chapter three, look, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This rock, this foundation upon Christ and his words and what he says about salvation and how one is truly saved, the one who's dug deep, found this truth and built their spiritual life, their hope for eternal life upon this unchanging, stable truth. That is the one who, when the floods arose, right? Now, this, this idea here is referring to judgment, okay? This is the context in which he is speaking. Not the storms of life specifically, but those can be applied here. That's an overflow of what's true of the scriptures. But this is judgment that he's referring to. And this is different. You see the flood arising, right, from the rivers in this case, right? The flood arose, the stream broke against that house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. Well, this house, this spiritual life, this soul will stand in judgment because his life and his salvation is built on the truth about what Jesus says about salvation. And therefore, he will stand in the judgment, as Psalm 1 talks about. Now, the difference here in, Ma in Matthew and Luke, which is just interesting and fun to look at, is that Matthew says the storm came and beat against the house. Luke says the stream overflowed and knocked against the house. Well, I love this because it just supplements. Because in Palestine at this time, there are many a storm. But the, the soil in Palestine is very dry, still is. It, like, imagine the exact opposite of Louisiana, Right? So we can't retain rain. Why? Because we're saturated, right? So that's why things flood. We can't absorb anything into our soil, okay? Well, Palestine can't absorb it, not because it's saturated, because the, but because the ground is hard. And so when it storms and when it's raining, which is the same situation in both cases, the the ground doesn't absorb it. The riverbeds and the streams overflow and they flood and houses are ruined. It's from the storm, yes. From the riverbed, yes, right? Same situation. Houses, different. Both houses on the outside that we're gonna see in a minute in this one probably look very similar. Alluding to the fact that the religious and the one who's truly trusted in Christ might have very similar, um, people might see them as very similar on the outside, right? The one who comes to church, follows the moral rules, thinks highly of Jesus, but really doesn't obey what he says. And the one who is truly trusting in Christ. These houses look the same, but they're built on a different foundation. And so what he's saying here is that this, as this stream breaks against the house, 
It will stand because it is built on the right foundation. Listen, coming judgment, and this is true, because God is a righteous judge, and he will judge you for your sin. It's not because he is, he is evil, but it's because he is good. He has to uphold what is good, what is pure, what is right, what is just. You wouldn't want a God who just lets evil slide on into eternity. That's not a good God, right? There will be justice. But he is also so good that he sent his son to pay for that sin for you so that you could receive salvation for free through his blood. And so what he is alluding to here is that this judgment that is coming, whether you like it or not, the one who will stand in the judgment is the one who is trusted in Christ and has built their life on the truth of what Jesus says about salvation. So the third thing that we see, which is the second of the examples, it's easy for us to see now, is that he shows the opposite. The one who hears and does not do them, in the NASB, it's acts upon them. I like that because it's not just doing. It's acting upon all that he said, which involves repentance, belief, trust, recognition of your own sin, of God's holiness, turning away and trusting in him, obedience, the fruit that comes along with obedience, all guided by his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, who acts upon all that Jesus has said about salvation, doesn't have just religious commitment, doesn't just have uh, good thoughts about Christ, doesn't just um, have, have uh, their own way of, of keeping moral code, doesn't just commit to the Old Testament law, doesn't just uh, perform ceremonies, etc. But this person, right, the one who truly will be saved is not the person who is just just committed in the way that they think they should be committed. But this person who does this, the person who only thinks about Jesus in the sense of what they believe, what they want to be true, etc. this person is the one who hears, who does not do them. He hears, verse 49, and does not do them, Right? He does not act upon them based upon the truth of what Jesus has said about salvation. Okay? This is the one who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. And in Matthew's account, what's the foundation? Sand. He's not done the proper work of digging for the truth of it. So when the river overflows, when the storms come, when judgment comes, comes, there will be no lasting foundation for their salvation because it was based on something that wasn't true, right? And so this is what he's saying. This house, without the foundation, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. They will not survive the judgment, right? They will go to hell. And so what we see here is probably some reasons that they didn't build their house on the rock. There's probably a couple of primary impediments to why 
this didn't occur. Some primary reasons that impeded their building their house on the rock, just based upon this scripture, okay? Um, what, what are they? Well, sin and unbelief are the root, but there seems to be difficulty with the first one, and it seems to be ease with the second one. Seems to be difficult with the first one and quick and easy with the, first, with the second one, right? First house, hard, dig, foundation, truth, real, built upon the rock. Unstable, I mean, un, uh, unmoving ground, unshifting ground. Second one, quick, easy, comes fast, but is not built on anything stable. And what I will tell you is I think that this is the reason most of us don't truly trust in Jesus in the right way for salvation because it's difficult. And I'm not making this up. I'm just gonna spit four verses at you real quick. Matthew 7, 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Matthew 16, verse 24. Those, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Truth is the foundation for us as Christians becoming like Jesus. That's harder than just doing what we want to do, right? John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And what else? Truth. That's harder. Because I got to look at what he says. I got to dig deep and I got to build my life on what he says about salvation. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So I think one of the issues that we see is difficulty. Probably another issue, and there are probably more, but I'm just giving you two for time's sake. You could take this home and and think about some other reasons, is short-sightedness, right? Difficulty and short-sightedness. This is quicker, this is easier to build it this way, yet I'm not thinking about the storm that is inevitably coming. I'm not thinking about the, the river that's inevitably going to overflow, right? Like, I'm just thinking about right here, right now. Seems pretty silly, doesn't it? But that's the truth about us when we look to salvation like this. And so what he's saying here is that he's showing us that this person probably just quicker and easier. And so listen, it's easier for you to love the world. It's easier for you to live for here and now. It's easier for you not to fight sin. It's sure easier not to build your life on the truth. But if you just look to right here, right now, you are ignoring the inevitable, inevitable, which is the judgment that is coming 
for your life. And there's only one that will survive the judgment, and that's those who have trusted in the truth of Christ based upon what he says is true in his word. So Psalm 90, 12 says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Matthew 6, 23 says, hey, listen, don't seek right here, right now, but seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Everything else will be taken care of. Matthew 16, 26, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The one who obeys and acts upon what he says will find eternal life. So friends, I hope that you commit to building your life upon the truth of Jesus' words about what he says in salvation and what he says about the life of a Christian. And by that, I pray that you would survive the judgment through what Jesus has done in his atoning sacrifice for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and ask you to do with your word what you so often do. And that is to draw people into repentance. Draw people into salvation. Draw people in to your word and your truth. It's so easy to build a Christian life that is really not a Christian life at all. Based upon no truth of what you say. And God, I pray that everyone in this room would build their lives upon your words about salvation. And so that we would stand in the judgment that you would call us into fellowship with you into eternity and we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room who has not truly trusted you in this way, that they would turn to you and your word and your words about salvation and find forgiveness for their sins and eternal life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.